If we were to have a text for our, the sermon today, it would be Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. In this series on creation, we've done a number of things to help us recover uh, a healthy and robust doctrine of creation. And to accomplish this, we've looked at a number of issues, and rather than review them all, I just will mention several and then focus on what we saw last Sunday. First of all, and I think that this is, is key, and particularly in what we'll see later in the sermon, creation and redemption cannot or should not be separated from each other. Jonathan Wilson, who's written about this, says that one of the gravest errors we can make in our witness to the good news of Jesus Christ is to separate creation and redemption from each other. Because the place and meaning of creation is found in its redemption. And the place and meaning of redemption is, in fact, the reclaiming and the healing of creation. If we cut the connection between creation and redemption, then, in fact, we lose them both. As you may remember, that Israel came to find out about the creation when they were at Sinai, when they were in the wilderness. So it is only because of God's redemptive work of bringing them out of slavery that they were able to then be told the truth of creation. Then we have seen that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. As Christians, we confess one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three in one work together in creation and redemption. We've seen that the one God is life, and we affirm that God is life. He's not merely the living one, as if we had access apart to life, or to life apart from God. Um, it's not as though there are various or variety of ways of life. There is, in fact, only one life. God is life, and everything else is death. When we understand something of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then we begin to realize that the Trinitarian way is the only way there can be life. Otherwise, in fact, there would be nothing. Wilson argues in his book that if God were not one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there would not be creation. There would be nothing, and no one would know that there was nothing. Then we have seen that this one God lives by relationship. To confess that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is to confess that God lives by relationship. And it involves each of the three persons. If there were only two persons, then we would in fact have an exchange, if you wish. But when we have three, then we have an interchange. Life is not to be merely reciprocal. It is, in fact, to be a relationship, an ongoing relationship. And so God created us not because he needed relationship, because God, Father, Son, and Son, uh, Spirit already had relationship. And then we've seen that the one God is love. In the life of the triune God, God the Father freely gives himself to the Son, and the Son freely gives himself to the Father, and this giving and receiving, we see, is in fact the life of the Holy Spirit. This giving and receiving is life. We may also refer to it as love. Therefore, we are told in Scripture that God is love. We saw that if we fail to recognize 
the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, then it will lead to bad thinking and to bad living. We need to have a good grammar, that's the word that we used, of the triune God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, in order to have a Christian understanding of creation. If, in fact, we have bad grammar, we will have bad living and bad thinking. And then several weeks ago, we began to see how it is that we are supposed to view creation. We're to view creation as gift. God did not create the world out of need. He did not create it because he needed something to love or because he needed relationship. But it, in fact, was a gift of love and relationship. Creation as the work of the one God is a gift because this work gives to the cosmos the overflowing. If you wish, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is this relationship and there is love and this overflows and then this is what we find as God creates the world. Their life together is one of eternal, overflowing love. And no greater gift can be given than what God gives as he creates the world. Both creation and redemption are gifts. Then we saw that we are to experience creation as blessing. God blessed creation, if you look at the end of Genesis chapter 1. He blessed those made in his image. And in fact, he said, be fruitful and work. We, God didn't simply make the world and say, okay, you guys can do whatever you want. He in fact blessed us and then gave us an assignment of what it is we are supposed to do. By the way, it is in worship that we recognize, that we acknowledge that creation is a blessing. And thus we praise God. We thank God for what he has done. Then we saw that we are to acknowledge, to understand that creation has a purpose, a telos. This is something we looked at last week. Everything has a telos. Everything has a purpose. And its purpose is appropriate to that thing. Now, in the last three centuries, the church, theology if you wish, has abandoned the idea that creation has a telos. It has cut the connection between creation and redemption. And as a result, it has really no view of the purpose of God's creation. Science, on the other hand, has no sense that creation has a telos, because if in fact you say that creation, it calls it nature, has a purpose, then you are, you are hampering the freedom of people who want to do whatever they want. If you say, no, this is what you're supposed to do, this is your purpose, then in fact we will impede people's freedom. Uh, I was re-listening to one of the Ken Myers uh, interviews on Mar- Mars Hill Audio Journal. And he said, all of our cultural institutions and practices are guided by some understanding of the meaning of human personhood. Such assumptions are often concealed because the current rules of a liberal society dictate that we don't bring our beliefs about ultimate principles out in public. Freedom has come to mean that public life can be guided by no expressly stated claims about the nature of reality. In other words, to be free in our modern world means you have no telos. You create or you choose whatever telos you want, whatever purpose you want, but to say that God made you for this purpose, that God created creation with a specific purpose in mind, for modern people, is, this, is, this is anathema. This is something that people don't want to hear. 
But in fact, creation does have a purpose. And then we saw what it means when we talk about creation being broken. And I think that this is, for me, one of the the most helpful things because I think many people think that when God created the world, the world was perfect. And God was finished. That's it. And it was just supposed to go on its own because it was perfect. And we could say that it was without sin, but in fact, creation was not yet complete. And we see this when God tells Adam that you are to go out and have dominion, you're supposed to subdue the earth. Well, why would you need to subdue something that was, in fact, already perfect? If anything, it would just, everything is fine, so you just go with the flow and whatever is going on, that's what's supposed to happen. But in fact, as we saw with Adam and Eve, God put them in a garden so that there they could learn, they could grow, they could mature. In the same way, God wanted his creation and wants his creation, because it has a telos, it has an end in sight, he wants it to grow and develop and mature. And one day it will achieve, by God's grace, God will bring it into its telos, and that is the new creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they did not destroy something that was perfect. I want to be very careful there. They brought death into the world, but in fact, they did not destroy something that was perfect. Because if we think that way, then we begin to think that redemption is God's way of rescuing it's like God's given up. You know, he made a perfect thing. It's like Humpty Dumpty and no one can put it back together again. So what God has done is sent Jesus Christ in to rescue people and get them out. And then that's it. And it'll all be gone. And they'll spend eternity in heaven with him. Um, this is, in fact, an incomplete telling of what has happened, what is happening and what will happen. What we need to understand is that the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit brought about creation with a purpose. The creation was to grow into the new creation. That is to say, if, if somehow we can imagine that on the first, so let's make it the second week because the first week is creation, the second week of creation, if we could somehow freeze creation and say, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be, and the answer would be no, not at all. This is a beginning point. And through humanity, creation is in fact to be brought to its purpose, and that is a new creation. And as I said last week, it's purely speculation, but I think that this would still require Jesus to come into the world. He would not have to die to redeem it, but he would simply bring the old creation, if you wish, into the new creation. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I have, in a number of sermons, um, uh, quoted Bob Dylan's song, uh, Everything is Broken, um, And there's a real sense in which that is true. But at the same time, by broken, we do not mean that it has been destroyed, but rather, instead of going toward its 
telos, the new creation, it's gotten off track. It's off track. And what is needed is by the grace of God and redemption to be put back on track to the goal that is the new creation. Today I want to look at creation as one more thing and then we'll do something else near the end. I want to look at creation as peace. When one thinks of the good news as found in Jesus Christ, peace is certainly a major part of that. In the Old Testament, as the prophets are anticipating the coming of Messiah, they write about peace. In the New Testament, when we read in the Gospels, we read of Jesus as the one of peace. Peace is a major component. But what is peace? And how does it fit into the doctrine of creation? Generally, we think of peace in terms of human beings, in terms of ourselves. Um, So we speak of having peace of mind, for example. Sometimes with regard to our relationship to God, uh, sometimes in you know, peace helping us to cope with, with the difficulties of life. That is to say, I think many people think of peace as being free from anxiety and fear. But I think if this is the only way we think of peace, then we have done something quite dangerous, and that is we have separated creation and redemption. Because what we've done is we say, everything is broken, and in redemption God will give me peace, but then peace is seen only in the context of redemption. What about creation? I think in many ways we see peace as the absence of conflict. And since there was no conflict in creation, you don't really want to talk about peace in that regard. It's only in the context of a fallen world, a broken world, that people, I think, begin to talk about peace. The good news of peace is for all creation. That God in Christ is bringing the world to the wholeness of life that will be enjoyed forever in the new creation. And the peace of Christ is so much more than peace of mind. It is, in fact, something that is cosmic. It is for all creation. But let's back up a minute. If we see peace only in terms of creation or redemption, then our starting point is not creation, but a broken world. And again, there's this unspoken assumption that, that creation did not need peace, because there was no conflict that required reconciliation or peace. It was perfect. It was just the way it was supposed to be. Which, as I've said, this is a faulty view of creation. If we see creation as gift and blessing, and if we understand the telos, the purpose of creation, then the peace that Jesus Christ brings and the peacemaking that we are called to participate in is not some idealistic, irresponsible dream or a public policy for the reduction of violence. Somehow we want peace in our society. Rather, peace simply is this. It is the very shape of creation. The God of creation and redemption is also the God of peace. And so we don't say, okay, he's the God of creation here, and over here he's the God of redemption and peace, but only peace over here. He is the God of all things. He is the God of creation, redemption, and peace. The peace of God is, in fact, the very heartbeat of the cosmos, created by the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit.
some time ago, several years ago, we looked at the issue of war. And, you know, thinking back on that, you could, you could make the argument that both pacifists who are Christians and non-pacifists who are Christians, I think, miss the point oftentimes in making their argument. Pacifists, for the most part, almost exclusively connect peace with God's work of redemption. Very rarely do you find any mention of creation. And so it opens the real possibility that creation is a place where peace does not exist. It's only in a broken world that peace, in fact, can come to be. On the other hand, those who are not pacifists might imagine themselves to be realists, that they are realistic about things. And so they might say that peace and peacemaking in a fallen world not politically realistic. Some have written in the 20th century of Christian realism, biblical realism, uh, gospel realism, uh, and they use this to describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the modern world. But there's a problem. What is real? When we say realistic, what are we talking about? Realistically, the God of peace is the ruler of the universe. It may not seem that way, but in fact, God is the ruler of the universe. The peace that the one God brings and establishes is in fact the ultimate realism. This peace is the most real world, if you wish. Oftentimes we think, well, no, that's, Damon, you're not being realistic. Come on, we've got to live in the real world. Well, God is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. He's doing these things right now. That is what is real. All other claims to determine and to rule the limit of our actions are, in fact, lies. Justice, and we looked at this several weeks ago, is the right alignment of the world with God through the redemption of creation. Let's put it this way. Those things in the world that work against life are to be properly lined up in relation to God. In aligning them this way, we see that in fact they are against life and therefore they are to be condemned. Those things, on the other hand, that work against death and for life must be properly lined up in relation to God. So in doing this, God is saying these things are to be condemned and these things are the things that, in fact, we are supposed to do. These are conducive to life. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be witnesses to this justice and this peace. We don't do it by ourselves. We don't enact it by ourselves. But first of all, what we do is we seek to find out what does God's justice look like? Then we are to look for it and discern its presence in the world. And then we are to bear witness to it. Could this, in fact, be what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven? The goal, the telos of justice, is not revenge, and it is not simply the righting of wrongs. Again, if we go back and see creation as sort of Humpty Dumpty, and now it's come apart, and now justice is trying to 
glue and put all the pieces back together again. No. The purpose of justice is the life of creation in the new creation. It is, if you, if you wish, to get us back on track to the goal, to the purpose that God intends for his creation. The new creation is, in fact, the proper end of creation and redemption. And therefore, God is patiently sustaining the world. He's redeeming creation, headed for the new creation. And to do this, the things of this world must be rightly aligned with God. This is what reconciliation is all about. Reconciliation is putting things back on track the way that they should be. Aligning all things into a proper relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about reconciling all things to Jesus Christ. So, all things are to be reconciled. They are to be put on track to the goal that God intended. One more thing before we move on. We may think of righteousness in terms of peace and creation. If, in fact, we place it in the context of the peace of creation. So righteousness identifies a part of what is necessary for the peace of creation. It is the way of life and not the way of death. Let me see. In simple terms, righteousness is right living in God's creation. It is right living in God's creation. With Adam and Eve, we see that they choose death and not life. And the call of Jesus Christ is to choose life. That's right living. And it puts us back on track for God's purpose for his creation. Okay, now to shift gears fairly dramatically. But what I want to do for the rest of the sermon uh, today and then next Sunday, the Lord willing, is, in fact, to look at some issues um, that need, I think, to be fleshed out and to be seen in the light of what we've seen thus far in this series. Today, I want to talk about worldliness. In 1 John 2.15, we read, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In these two verses, we find two different dispositions toward the world, if you wish, in quotation marks. One is a rejection of the world or worldliness, and the other is a passionate commitment to the world through evangelism. But in some ways, I think these are partially mistaken. And sometimes what we find is that people find themselves sort of discombobulated and swinging between extremes, in part because they have no conception of a world that is opposed to Christ and that poses a danger to Christian faithfulness. In previous generations, including mine when I was younger, the conception of the world and worldliness has shaped many lives, ministries, missions, and so on. Now it seems that the focus is not on worldliness, it's a word you hardly hear anymore, but rather on culture, engaging culture, making culture, shaping culture. 
But in fact, without a well-thought-through doctrine of the world, which is derived from a healthy doctrine of creation, engaging culture, shaping culture, making culture, might in fact be extremely vulnerable to ideologies and principles and powers that might put us in a direction other than what God intends. Let me back up a minute. For many in the past, as I said in previous generations, we describe worldliness or we characterize worldliness mainly in terms of behavior or appearance. In this approach, the world, if you wish, called the shots. Because whatever the world was doing, then the church or Christians, so as not to be worldly, would do the opposite or something very dissimilar from what was going on. In time, I think people came to see this as somewhat silly. I remember years ago at a youth camp, I was a teenager, so many years ago, there was a question and answer time. And one of the questions was, can Christian men wear sideburns? It was the early 1970s. And one of the pastors answered, no, because Tom Jones has sideburns. To which another pastor said, that's ridiculous, he also wears pants. I mean, at one point do you say, I can't do something because the world is doing that, and if I do what the world does, then in fact I am being worldly. Well, as I said, in time, some came to see this as silly, and I think beyond that, people came to see that the church was focusing on petty and silly things, when in fact things were going under the radar, uh, things like injustice and oppression and more, that the church was blind to and was complicit in and didn't recognize that as being worldly. I'm reminded that at the turn of the 20th century that one of the largest slumlords in New York City was in fact a church. That a church had been given an apartment building uh, by someone who had passed away and so that was a source of income for the church but the church did not take care of its tenants, did not take care of the property, and ended up being one of the greatest slumlords in New York City at that time. Well, I think that certainly comes under the category of worldliness. But not if we're focusing on appearance. The result is, many Christians and many churches now have simply dispensed with the whole business, the whole category of world or worldliness. Because we don't want our children to be bound by such legalism and such thinking. The result is, not healthy, the result is that the church has no theological category that we can call the world. What is the world? We can talk about culture, and we can talk about culture wars, and in fact, rather, you know, it used to be sideburns and bell-bottom pants and things like that. That, what, that marks somebody as worldly. And now we've exchanged it for political opinions. What political party do you belong to? What is your, the economic theory that you subscribe to? That becomes the marker. So we've replaced outward appearance with beliefs, but beliefs that in many ways are not biblical but simply they have been aligned with the Christian faith. So that, where we live right now, to be a Christian is assumed by many people to be politically conservative. 
But is that biblical? I think in part people have gravitated toward that because they have no theology. They have no doctrine of the world. So, we use Christian and we attach it to certain things. Certain movements, certain political positions. But they have nothing theological to support them. They are not grounded in the gospel. They are not grounded in the doctrine of creation. We could spend all day talking about the failures of the church in the past in this matter. That's not going to be productive or helpful. What we need to do is focus on what's going on right now in our lives. So, let's begin. What is the world? When we talk about the world, when the Bible talks about the world, what does it mean? I will suggest the following definition. And this, again, is from Jonathan Wilson. The world is all things in creation, visible and invisible, that have not recognized and submitted to God's work of redeeming creation. You can put it another way, those things that have not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So it is God's creation. All things in God's creation, <coughs> excuse me, visible and invisible, that have not recognized and submitted to God's work of redeeming creation. If we take this definition and take it seriously, then we can begin to understand what we find about the world in the New Testament. And let me just read to you uh, a number of portions of passages. God so loved the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. I read earlier from 1 John 2. Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. 2 Corinthians 5, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And then in James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? If we know that the word world describes powers and creatures that have their being and life by the gift of God. We need to stop and think that, that all things that are here have their being and they have life by the gift of God. Then, when we describe them as enemies of God, it is because they have turned from God's purpose for them and for his creation. God has a purpose. He wants to bring all things into perfection, into the new creation. And these things have, in fact, gone off track and are trying to pull anyone who's on track off track to follow them down a different path. So worldliness, then, is living as if the claims of the world are true. That when it talks about purpose and telos and nature and this is the natural way, that's what worldliness is. It's living as though those claims were true. And it is living as though these things, in fact, have not been defeated by Jesus on the cross. It is interesting that we are not given a concrete description or concrete examples of worldliness. But I think this is one of the strengths of worldliness. It isn't just in one form. It changes from generation to generation. It may even change from day to day. That what we think one day, okay, I'm not being worldly, but in fact, the next day, that in fact may be a way of going contrary 
to what God intends. It may be a way of not submitting to the rule and the redemption of Jesus Christ. So that even in church and doing church work, we may find ourselves being worldly because, in fact, we we have embraced the tools, the weapons of the world, and we are not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to be on our guard to discern the claims and the allure of the world in our circumstances. And this can be personally, it can be communally, it can be in our society, it can be in our nation, it can be global. Differing circumstances require differing accounts of the way that the world is at work as a servant of death. It changes, as I said, all the time. A proper account of the world testifies to the reality that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, not through the strategies, not through the tactics or weapons of the world, but through the strategies, the tactics, and weapons of the kingdom of God. And what are these tactics? What are these strategies, these weapons? Love, obedience, forgiveness, and sacrifice. We may not recognize it, but when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, the world was decisively changed. The process of redemption has begun. With a healthy doctrine of creation redeemed and reconciled, we are called to participate in that reality. I think in many ways we imagine that that yes, Jesus died and uh, was buried and then raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. But that the world is exactly the same as it was before he came. <clears throat> and we're just waiting for him to come back and sort of wrap up everything, you know, break down the stage and take us to heaven. When in fact, God came into human history. How can it not fundamentally change the world? How can, I, how can it not fundamentally change history? God comes into the world and he does not use the weapons of the world. He, in fact, uses love and forgiveness and sacrifice. And we who are God's people are to bear witness to what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, through Christian love, Christian obedience, Christian forgiveness and sacrifice. We betray that belief and our calling when we love the world by using its weapons. We, in fact, may imagine ourselves to be fighting the world, but we are using the world's weapons. Read Second Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul talks about this, that we do not use the weapons of the world. We don't use the strategies. We are not to use the strategies of the world. When we love the world by fighting through its, with its weapons, when we allow the imperatives of the world to set the boundaries for our actions, this is what it means to be successful. As a church, this is what success means. This is, means that we're on the right track. When we believe that the weakness of forgiveness will lead to death, be realistic, Damon. You can't forgive. People just walk all over you when we think that we can save our lives by gaining the world, if somehow we can get everyone saved and transform society, 
then we will save our lives by doing this. If we don't recognize that the world is in fact in rebellion against God, the way that things are becomes natural, realistic. This is the way that things are. And in this view, nature tells us the way things are and the limits of our actions. Don't think you can accomplish anything um, by doing this. This is simply the way things are. Wilson, in his book, points out that we have moved historically from creation, in which we look to the creator and redeemer to heal a rebellious and fallen creation and save us from that fate. We have moved to nature. And nature in which we look to science to explain the mechanisms of the world and to save us from death. And now, because of technology, we have moved creation, nature, to virtuality. And there we look to technology to create an alternative reality, one in which there is no death, we hope. But in fact, to walk that path is to choose death. Worldliness in the past, I think, has been seen as a trivial matter that concerns human rules. Paul wrote to the Colossians about the legalistic false teachers that were coming in who said, do not handle, do not touch, or taste, do not touch. And for many people, this is what it means to be worldly. If you do these things, you are worldly. In reality, we are worldly when in fact in a very foolish and indulgent way, we imagine that this is the way things have always been. And we use the thinking of the world, the weapons of the world, to accomplish what we think should be done for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So worldliness tells us you should submit to life, to the, your life to the world, of the world, so that you may enjoy life while you can. This is the way of death, because it is turning from life. By God's grace, may we recover a robust, a healthy doctrine of creation and see it as gift, as blessing, as having purpose, and as peace. And as a result, have a better understanding of our calling as God's people, that we are to live in God's creation that is being redeemed, and we are not to be worldly. We are not to think like the world, use the weapons of the world, but instead be guided by love, obedience, forgiveness, and sacrifice. The things that we see supremely exemplified in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I... I think that we imagine it would be so much easier if we could tell the good guys from the bad guys by what they wore, how they cut their hair, external markers. Now that the church has, in a way, turned away from that, or many have, we've turned to other markers which are just as false. That we imagine if someone has a differing political view or economic view. And, and somehow we missed the point. 
Help us to see that you are redeeming your creation. That which in many ways is refusing to submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. But by your grace, you are redeeming. And through us, you are calling your creation back to submission. May we be careful not to imagine that we can use the weapons of the world to somehow defeat the world. But rather follow the Lord Jesus Christ in love and obedience and forgiveness and sacrifice. Calling your creation back to its proper place on the path to the new creation. By your grace, may we think on these things in the coming days. I thank you that you've brought us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.